All right, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. The whole theme of Ephesians is walking in the riches of God's grace. And starting in chapter 4, Paul has been teaching us how to live like those who have the awesome riches that we learned about in those first three chapters. And we are currently looking at one of our worthy responses. He says, I beseech you, based on all that Christ has done for you, walk worthy of this name that you have of Christian. And so we've been learning that one of our worthy responses to the grace that God's shown to us, to the riches that we have in him, one of our worthy responses is to use the gifts that God has given us to fulfill our assigned task in his family in the church. And we learned last week that Jesus gave leaders to the church to teach God's word. So we are fully equipped to do that assigned task. And so the church can grow stronger. So this morning, we're going to look at the goal of this kind of church life, to become a mature congregation, and uh, to reach that goal of being a mature congregation, all of us need to be on board. So Ephesians 4, I'm going to start reading from verse 7, but we'll pick up our study in verse 13. Paul says, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all things, that he might fill all things. So unto every one of us he gave grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. We've all received grace to receive gifts from the Lord, and so we need to use those gifts. Now, he gave some, verse 11, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the equipping of the saints. That's why Jesus gave these gifts, these leadership gifts, was for the equipping of the saints, for or for the purpose of their equipping is for the work of the ministry, so they could do the work of the ministry, the saints, and for the edifying, the strengthening, building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cutting craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive." So here we jump into, in verse 13, we answer the question, well, how long do we need to be equipped and strengthened? How long do we need to be doing this church life thing? And Paul gives the answer in verse 13, until we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. So we see here that it defines how long we need to be equipped and strengthened, how we accomplish our goal, and then what our goal is. So we start here with this, how long we need to be equipped and strengthened. How long do we need to be equipped by the word of God that was given to us by the apostles and prophets? How long do we need to sit under the teaching of evangelists and pastor teachers? How long do we all need to use our gifts and do the assigned task, the the ministry that Jesus gave us in the church? How long do we need to be built up and strengthened? Well, until, until our goal is attained. Now, before we get to the goal, we need to look at who is involved in reaching this goal. Is it just these leaders in verse 11? Is it just the people who attend church the most? No, it says until we all come. Literally, it means until the whole of us arrive or attain to a particular state. The whole of us. 
In other words, the nature of the church is not me first or even me focused. The nature of the church is us focused. That's how it works. We need church life until every individual who is in Christ attains the goal, not just a select group. And we need it until we all attain it together. Now, if you're born again, that means this attaining of this goal includes you. You're not excluded from this. No Christian is to be left behind, and no Christian is to bail out because they've already arrived. You don't cross the finish line, and then you're like, all right, I'm done. No, no Christian is to be left behind, and no Christian is to bail out because they've already arrived. Over 25 years of doing pastor ministry, pastoring ministry, uh, it is very common for me to hear uh, Christians say, well, I already know the Bible. I don't need, I don't need to go to church anymore, which, which I would say, even if that was a true statement, you missed the point of church. Even if that was a true statement, you missed the point of church. If you're in Christ, you're part of the church, and we need you if we're all going to arrive at our goal together. Now, this word come or attain is in the mood of possibility. All the verbs, in fact, in these verses are all in the mood of possibility, which means it's possible for us to fall short of this goal if the leaders stop equipping or the congregation stops doing their assigned tasks from God. We can fall short. We can miss out on what God has for us. Now, that's a heavy challenge to us to not stop doing those things, isn't it? When we make a decision here, whether it's a leadership team or the pastors or the church board makes a financial decision or something along those lines, it is always filtered through this most important question. Is this going to equip the saints better? It it all goes through there. Is this going to equip the saints better? And if the answer is yes, then we'll consider it. If the answer is no, then we're not going to waste our time on it because that's our job. Our job is to equip the saints. When we have, you may have seen it around the church, we have a little phrase, we have learn, love, grow, go, right? And, and that's, it, it's something that I, I kind of use to sum up our church. A lot of times people actually say, well, what is Calvary Chapel Orlando like? And I'm not going to go through all four of them, but starting off with just the first thing, I say, well, we're a church that our goal is to learn the Word of God, to be equipped by the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God. And therefore, when you come to our church services or come to our meetings, the teaching of the Word of God is going to be the primary thing we do. That's a great way to describe our church, isn't it? If you come to our church, you know that's the case, right? That what we do, the primary thing we're going to spend time in whatever we're doing here is we're going to become equipped through the teaching of the Word of God. So we want to learn. I'm not going to go over the other points this morning because that's not our goal this morning. But that's the idea of why we put such emphasis, such priority on this practice. I want to take that heavy challenge and be faithful with it. Now, there's another side of that, and it's the congregation. If they stop doing their assigned tasks from God, it doesn't matter how well we're equipping, we still can fall short of our goal. It's not just the leaders that need to be doing their job. It's everyone needs to be doing their assigned tasks from God. Everyone needs to use their gifts. That's the only way that we can become a mature church congregation. Now, if at any point the church leadership here stops making equipping the saints a priority, then go somewhere where they are. (laughs) I would say come talk to us first so we can be corrected. But if we're not doing that, then we're not really doing what the church is supposed to do. 
So that's why we're going to stay there. Now, while it's possible for us to fall short of this goal if we're not doing those things, the good news is that it is possible for us to get closer to reaching our goal if the leaders keep equipping and the congregation keeps serving. We can be a church that is right where Jesus wants us to be, which is on the road to our goal. So what is our goal? It tells us, till we all, till all of us come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The word in here should say into. It's a preposition that marks a change of state. In other words, we were in one state, but now we're moving into a new state. Now, Paul explains our old state in verse 14. When we first get saved, we are immature. When we first get saved, we are spiritual children. Our goal is a new state, maturity. And that maturity, a mature congregation is described in two ways here. Number one, that we arrive or we attain into the unity of the faith. And then number two, unto a perfect man or into a perfect man. So we look at the first one here and it says, till we all come into the unity of the faith. What's the unity of the faith? Well, the word unity means a oneness. It's an agreement by all people involved. Now, we already know what the faith refers to because Paul mentioned that in verse 5, and we covered it when we went over those verses. There is one faith. There's one way that we all got saved. And our goal is for all of us to be on the same page regarding salvation. That's our goal. Now, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Will, doesn't the fact that we're all at church today show that we've attained that goal? Let me give you some thoughts to maybe change that perspective a little bit. Do you ever struggle wondering if you've done enough to be saved? Or do you ever struggle wondering if God will somehow reject you because you failed to do enough to be saved? Or that God must bless you because you have done good things or you have served Him? If any of us struggle like that or with similar ideas, then we're not all on the same page concerning salvation yet. One of the most common struggles that I see Christians have is that when bad things happen to them. Now, not that when bad things happen that they should be going, oh, yay, bad things just happened to me. I see them struggle in the sense of the phrase that you often hear, why do bad things happen to good people? That's not a difficult question to answer because it's an illogical question. There are no good people. Anyone who asks that question has believed a lie that causes them to frame the question that way. There are no good people. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. It says we're all unrighteous. That's why Jesus had to die on the cross. So commonly I'll hear Christians, though, voice something along those lines. In other words, why would my child be sick? Or why is my child walking away from the Lord? Or why is my child struggling in life? I tithe, I serve, I obey God. Or why is my marriage struggling? Or why is my spouse so unkind to me? I go to Bible studies and I'm a law-abiding citizen. Or why did I get fired? Or why did I not get that promotion? I'm a good witness and a hard worker. Or why wasn't I asked to share my testimony? Or why wasn't I asked to teach that Bible study? Don't they see all the things I do? Don't they see God's call on my life? All of those thoughts betray a problem with legalism. They're all legalistic ideas. 
that somehow God's blessing is attained by doing the right things or making certain sacrifices, that God somehow owes me something because I did something for Him. This is why Paul adds the statement, end of the knowledge of the Son of God. So we all come to a, a consensus and agreement on what the Bible has to say about salvation and unto a, the knowledge of the Son of God. You see, what Paul says when, after he says the unity of the faith, it clarifies what being on the same page about salvation looks like. The word their knowledge, it refers to full knowledge, precise and correct knowledge. It means we understand exactly who Jesus is. And yet, it's not just head knowledge, but it's experiential knowledge. In other words, if we experience the full understanding of what it means that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, when we think of Jesus as the Son of God, that's a little bit different than the title Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. When we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, that's a statement that refers to the fact of His majestic position as the second person of the Godhead. Being on the same page as it concerns salvation means we all fully understand who Jesus is and that we understand the gap between the awesome Son of God and little old me. That we understand the grace and love of God which bridge that gap through the cross to save me, and to secure His blessings for me. When we all come to that place, we understand that God doesn't owe me anything, but He's done so much for me, and I can rest there. Well, then we've arrived at our one description of our goal of being a mature believer is we rest in that finished work of Christ, all of us together. When all of us have experienced knowing Christ to such depths that we no longer look to our own righteousness in any way as either the basis for our relationship with God or the basis for His blessings, well, then that's when we've arrived at the unity of the faith. Now, that's the first description of the new state we're supposed to be moving into. That's the place we're supposed to be moving towards. The second description we see Next, he says, unto a perfect man, and then he clarifies what that means, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know he's saying? Until we're all perfect? No, when the Bible uses the word perfect, it refers to maturity. It means someone who is full-grown, someone who is mature. Now, a person could be fully grown age-wise or height-wise, but still be immature, right? That's why we use the phrase, oh, he's a man-child still right? Sadly, I have met Christians who claim to have been Christians for a long time or even involved in their church for, or ministry for a long time, but they act like little boys and little girls still. So this means that we must measure Christian maturity differently than length of time as a Christian or length of service as a Christian. The way we measure it is unto the measure, the measuring stick, what we're going to measure ourselves against is the stature of the fullness of Christ. The word stature here means someone's height, age, or maturity level. The height, age, or maturity level of the full package that is Jesus. In other words, what his maturity level looks like. Now, Paul certainly isn't saying that each of us needs to be as tall as Jesus. If that's the case, I'm in trouble and my wife is really in trouble. People always come to her and say, I can't believe you make short jokes about you in front, of the, in front of everybody. I've been doing that since we were 13. So 
the other day she shouted from the, from the kitchen, and I didn't even know what she said, but I started walking towards her with a grin because I knew there was probably like a 94% chance she couldn't reach something and needed help. So certainly that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not saying we need to be as old as Jesus or even look physically like Jesus. That's not possible. But what is possible is that we can have his maturity level. We can conduct our lives like Jesus did. We can reflect his character by how we think and how we behave. Being a full-grown, mature Christian means we think and we act like Jesus. That's the second description of the new state that we're moving into. Now, if you're hearing this and you think we all got to be on the same page about who Jesus is and who we are and salvation, and we, and we all need to be just like Jesus and how we think and how we act, you might be thinking, man, we've got a long way to go. You're right. You're right. That's why we need church life. That's why what we're doing right now is important. It's why everything that goes on after this service is important. It's why your interactions throughout the week with one another are important. It's why we need church life. We aren't going to arrive at our goal if people attempt to do Christianity on their own. We need leaders to equip us. We need others to build us up, and we need to use our gifts to build others up. We need worthy church life. We need biblical church life because that's the only way we're going to become mature believers who are on the same page about Jesus. Now, the reason we need to be moving into this new state is because our starting position when we get saved is immaturity. And if our church is characterized more by immaturity than maturity, if we're not moving on to maturity, that's a bad thing for our congregation. And so in verse 14, Paul explains what an immature congregation looks like. He says that, in other words, why we need to move into this new state of maturity is because that we henceforth be no more children, that we might no longer be what we started off as, which is children. And again, this, this verb here is in the mood of possibility. It is possible to leave immaturity behind, but it is also possible to remain an immature congregation. It's possible. Now, what is a child here? Well, the word for children here, it refers to a small child above the age of, hel- of a helpless infant, but not more than three or four years old. One child development agency that I was looking at described the three to four-year-old range like this. They said, during this year, your child really starts to understand the difference between feeling happy, sad, afraid, or angry. They have the ability to show fear, care about how others act, and show affection to others. But they don't know how to yet handle those emotions well. And sadly, that is a very apt description of many Christians, some who have been going to church for decades. They're able to interact with others spiritually and might even know the lingo, but they haven't yet learned how to control their thoughts, their emotions, and their behavior. And the reason that is, is because an immature believer is still influenced by all the unbiblical ideas that exist in the world that we live in. Paul explains that next, that we henceforth no longer be this child that can't control itself, and explains, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of man and the cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. And we'll start with the beginning of the verse. Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. This is what an immature congregation looks like. 
They are regularly tossed about by waves. Like when we did our beach baptism a few weeks back, there were a few of you that we lost control of. The waves were in control of what was happening, right? And that's the idea. You're getting battered by the waves and taking it wherever, the, wherever you go, wherever the waves take you. They toss you around. It's also described as being carried by a wind of doctrine. The word carried means to be regularly whirled around in circles. And the thing that batters you around and whirls you in circles is teaching that blows through like a squall. It's teaching that comes in and it comes towards you and you don't recognize what it is. And so it controls you instead of you being able to say, no, that's wrong. This teaching is brought, it says, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Now, this last part of the sentence here is very difficult to translate, so I'm going to try to do my best job because the English doesn't do it justice. When it says by the slight of men, it means by the dice throw of men. And then by the cunning craftiness of men there, it means by double dealing men, those who are treacherous or duplicitous. In other words, they're saying one thing, but they really have a different motive in mind. They have a different goal from what they're explaining to you in mind. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with getting a person's thoughts or advice on how to mow a yard properly or how to repair your car properly or how to paint happy little trees correctly. You don't need to go do a background check on them to find out if they are, are you born again? You know, do you know the Word of God? Well, you don't need to do that if, if you're asking somebody how to mow your yard or do something like this. But if someone is giving you advice or wisdom on a topic that the Bible addresses, but they aren't either using the Bible correctly or using the Bible at all, then there are only two ways to describe what they are doing. They are, number one, either rolling the dice with your life, or number two, they are double dealing. In other words, they, they are saying something that benefits them, not you. Do you understand that? If you are seeking advice or wisdom on a topic that the Bible addresses, but the person giving you the advice or the counsel isn't using the Bible correctly or they're not using it at all, they're either rolling the dice with your life or they're double dealing. How is that so? Well, if I come to someone and say, well, I don't know what to do. And they tell me what they think I should do instead of pointing me to what God says I should do. Then no matter how much life they've experienced and no matter how much they might think they're helping me, they're ignoring the information that's necessary to give me a good and helpful answer. That is not love. That is rolling the dice with a person's life. Might turn out good, might not. By the same token, if that same person tells me what I want to hear, or what they want me to do instead of what God says I should do, well, then they're double dealing. They're saying that this is what's best for you, but really their words are what's best for them. And think about it for a minute. Is it love when someone refuses to tell me what God says because they don't want me to be mad at them when they do so? Whose benefit are they doing that for? Like, if you ever ended up in a conversation with someone, they start saying something, you're going, ooh, that's off. 
Like, no, 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 that's not, that's not how you handle that. Or like, no, you shouldn't have said that to someone. You're thinking this. But the second thought that comes in, it goes, yeah, but if I tell them that, they're going to blast me. If either you don't say anything or you, you don't tell them the truth or you give them some other answer out of your own heart, whose benefit are you giving the answer you're giving for? It's for you. It's not for them. I, I'm not doing, saying what I'm saying out of love for them. Well, I don't want them to get all upset. Why would you care if they get all upset? The only person you care about them getting all upset is, is because you're going to be on the receiving end of that. Husbands. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because <laughs> she knows what I'm going to say. Please, please, stop saying this. Well, I ever bring that up, my wife's going to get upset with me. You're not doing that for her, you're doing that for you. See, I'm not just doing it for me, I'm doing it for the whole house. Part of being a spiritual leader means you have the hard conversations. Now, of course, I say this, and then your husband's like, yeah, I'm going to lead my family now, I'm going to go home and put my wife in her place. That's not what I said. <laughs> that is not Christ, and that's not love, and that's not leading. When something is, it has a conflict like that, the answer isn't just to keep the peace. The answer is to lovingly wash your wife in the Word. You say, sweetheart, I love you, but you are wrong. We're not going to do that. We're going to sit down and we're going to hammer this out together and we're going to follow Jesus in this. Say, so if I do that, she won't respond well. Tough. Tough. You're a man, not a boy. You lead through that. And you keep being a man. You keep leading through it, no matter what. You keep loving through it. You keep laying your life down, no matter what. Because that's what love does. At any moment, going to the cross. Any moment, from the moment of the triumphant entry. I mean, the triumphant entry, and everybody's singing, Hosanna, this is great, this is great. And then the religious leaders come up and, Master, tell your disciples to stop it. Are you not on board with this? Put the palm trees away, everybody. I'm going back to Jericho. I mean, that's not what he did. I mean, I mean, he went into the face of the fire. And he didn't go into the face of fire for people he didn't care about. He didn't go into the face of the fire for people that didn't matter to him what, what happened to them. He loved every single one of them. And he went in there and they'd say, tell the kids to be quiet. And he'd say, haven't you read? What do you do? He gave them the word. He washed them in the word. I understand it. I've got six children. Last thing I want to do is disappoint them or have a bad relationship with them. And the, the alternatives, of course, is either to you know, say, well, I'm going to get a control of things, and, and that's what a man is, or I'm just going to not do anything and not engage. Those are both unbiblical responses. You walk into that situation knowing they're going to break your heart, and you go and you love them anyway, and you speak the truth to them. And you love them even when they don't want to hear it. And you love them even when they don't want to follow through with it. And you keep doing it and you do it and do it and do it again until you're dead. Because that's what love does. You want to know why your wife doesn't respect you? You don't love her enough to fight with her. You don't love, love, love her enough to fight for her. You're more concerned with your own well-being 
So she knows she's not the priority. Is it love when someone refuses to tell me what God says because they don't want to be mad at them? No. Do they have my best in mind when they tell me it's okay to disobey God because that means they'll, they'll have more time with me instead of me spending time with my spouse and my kids? No. It's not love. Do they have my best in mind when now they feel better because your marriage failed too? Now they've got company. That's not love. Does a pastor have my best in mind when they refuse to teach the Bible on a topic because I'll be tempted to leave or to stop serving or stop tithing because what they taught convicted me? Does a pastor or a Bible teacher have my best in mind when they give their own ideas instead of the Bible and roll the dice with your life? When a person teaches or advises me out of their own ideology or their own selfish desire rather than the Word of God, Paul says it leads us astray. The end here, it says, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. That's just really hard to translate into English. And so the best way is, I could say, these guys are either rolling the dice with your life or they're, they're double dealing with you. What they do when they do this to you and you can't discern it, it says they further the deceitful art of error or the deceitful path of lies. You've heard the phrase that God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life? It's true. God does love you and he has an awesome plan for your life. But there's another truth out there. Satan hates you and he has an awful plan for your life. And when we get saved, we begin on that journey that God has for us. We begin down the road of God's wonderful plan for our lives. We already read about it in Ephesians 2 where it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works or unto the good works which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. That's his awesome plan for us. And when we get saved, we begin on that journey. We start going down that road of God's wonderful plan for our lives. But if we stay immature, what happens is the dice rolls of people's advice or people's teaching can blow us off the path and put us back on the false path. And so Paul, he wants us to grow. He wants us to grow past this going in circles immaturity so that we can live the worthy life we've been given by Jesus. He wants us to stop being influenced by every idea that's out there to instead be able to discern between right and wrong, truth and lies. A life that looks like verses 15 and 16, which you have to come back next week to learn about because I don't have enough time to go into all that today. But what I want to leave you with this morning, I'm not near done yet, but what I want to leave you with, though, is I think sometimes we can look at this and we can say, well, I'll never get there or we'll never get there. I like our church, but I, don't, I can't see how we'd ever get there. I mean, how is it possible for every single person here to be on the same page about salvation? How is it possible for everyone here to all be using their gifts and all be mature believers? I want to paint a picture for you of a church that was doing this so you can see what that looks like and see that it is possible. So turn to Acts chapter two with me and I wanna look at verses 42 through 47. Now, the context here is the day of Pentecost. Peter's just preached this amazing message, preached the gospel to people, and they respond by, they're convicted. Many of the folks there in Jerusalem who were 
anti-Jesus. Most of the folks who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry were from Galilee. The folks of Jerusalem as a whole rejected him from day one. And they're the ones that were very much the ones in the crowd that said, crucify him, crucify him. These people who crucified Jesus, Peter's preaching to them this awesome gospel message. And it says they're cut to the heart and they turn to Peter and they say, men and brethren, what, what do we need to do to be saved? Like, how do we fix this? We crucified our Messiah. What do we do? So Peter told them to repent, to put their trust in Christ and to signify it by getting baptized. And so they do. It's just 3,000 people repent and get saved. It's awesome. It's amazing. And then it says in verse 42, what they do, these 3,000 souls that just got saved, what do they do? It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. Their time and their energy was focused on what? Getting into the word of God and getting equipped being taught the scriptures and getting equipped, fellowshipping with others. In other words, using their gifts, interacting with others, sharing life with other believers, in breaking of bread, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. In other words, again, using our gifts, interacting with one another, ministering to one another. So getting equipped and doing the things that we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. And what was the result of all these new believers doing this? It says, and fear came upon every soul. In other words, there was a great reverence for God amongst all the church as a result. And it says, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. So again, gifts are being used. Verse 44, and all that believed were together. They had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. I don't have time to get into why that was not the best idea, but the point is, is it communicated a generous heart. They were, they were not greedy about their things. They had generous hearts. They wanted to serve at one another. Verse 46, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. In other words, they were all of the same mindset. They were all on the same page, and they're serving the Lord there in the temple, sharing the gospel with people in the temple. They're breaking bread from house to house, spending time with one another, ministering to each other, and in doing so, they're eating their food with gladness, joy in their hearts, and singleness, a simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. The church is growing. It's impacting more lives. The kingdom of God's growing. Doesn't that sound like a church that's on the way to where they're supposed to be? Yeah, it sounds awesome. So here's what I want to throw out at you. When the very first church started to grow and they impacted the lives around them in this way, it's because they had healthy church life. That was a priority for them, and so they were headed toward their goal. You might look and say, oh, how can we do that? I mean, we've got all these challenges or whatever. Perspective. What if 3,000 people just showed up next Sunday who got saved? Just out of the blue, 3,000 people are here next Sunday. Do you know how easy it would be for anyone of those 3,000 who showed up to go, I don't really feel like I'm a part. I don't really know what my role is. Oh, there's 2,900 other people here who could do what I, I like to do. Why am I needed? All the things that you feel, all the things that you look and say, well, I, I don't know how I can do this, or I don't know how I can help others do this. This was thrust upon a, a, a young congregation. They were all young believers too all these brand new believers and all these young believers, and they're all thrust in this place. And yet, because they do it the way the Bible says you're supposed to do it, they had healthy church life, 
they were moving toward their goal. So we don't have that scenario. I mean, I hope 3,000 people get saved and show up next Sunday. But I mean, that would, that would tax us and like, how do we handle that? What do we do? But if we just keep doing this, like if, if the leaders are equipping through the teaching of the Word of God, and you're being equipped and then being faithful to use your gifts to serve one another, we can be this too. And I think when we ask the question, are we headed towards our goal? I think we are. But that requires all of us to be moving in that direction. And so, in closing, I ask you this morning, are you headed toward this goal? Are you letting yourself be equipped? Are you making that a priority in your life? Are you doing your assigned tasks from God? Are you seeking Him to say, Lord, how can I use my gifts? You know, how, can I, how can I serve you faithfully? How can I build up my brothers and my sisters? Is church life important to you? If you struggle with that, then what I would just urge you, like Paul does, Therefore, brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God. I would urge you, go back and read the first three chapters. Go back and read everything Jesus has done for you. And then go and answer that question again. If these things are not a priority to you, if you're not willing to sacrifice time and energy to serve your brothers and sisters, if you're not willing to sacrifice time and energy to get equipped so you can have a good marriage, so you can be a good parent, so you can be a good brother or sister in Christ, so you can learn what your gifts are, so you can know how to use them, you can learn how to serve. If you're not willing, if you're not willing to do those things, then go read the first three chapters again and ask you, what else does Jesus have to do to get my attention? What else does Jesus have to do for me to want to live a life that's worthy of all he did for me? Because that's not going to happen if all of a sudden people start paying more attention to you or recognizing your gifts more or any other of the above reasons why we were not obedient to serve. The thing that will do it is the great love and the great grace that Jesus has shown to you. The awesome position that God has given to you in Christ Jesus through the cross. Amen? So, let's move in that direction. I had someone say to me after first service, they said, well, I don't think I'm an immature Christian, but I think, I think I'm just taking baby steps forward. Well, that's better than moving backwards. As long as we're moving in the right direction, the Lord's pleased. That's where we're supposed to be. So, if you look at yourself this morning and say, I'm not moving in the right direction. I'm not, I, I have not embraced this type of, this biblical idea of church life. I have not embraced that. Well, then this morning is a good morning to repent. This morning is a good morning to say, all right, Lord, I want to embrace this. I want to change. And again, if you're struggling with that, then read the first three chapters of Ephesians and keep reading it until it sinks in. The awesome grace that God has shown to you. Let's all stand. Lord, we sang that song, Oh, the joy to be. What an amazing thing it is to be your child, to be in Christ. Lord, we thank you so much for all you've done for us. And Lord, in light of what you've done for us, you call us to live a worthy life. And part of that includes our church life. So Lord, you know where we're all at this morning. You know where I'm at. You know sometimes, Lord, where I struggle. I struggle with with those legalistic tendencies sometimes. Sometimes I'm not maturing like I need to be. I'm not yielded to you like I need to be. Sometimes I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice and serve like I need to. So you know where we're all at with this, Lord. And even as you've been speaking to each heart this morning is 
as we come now before you, we say, Lord, we, we want to yield to you. We want to surrender that area of our life to you. We want to change how we approach our, our mindset toward church life. Lord, for every individual who's doing that right now, I pray that you would, would hear that prayer and you'd answer him, that you'd give him the strength to change, you'd fill him with the knowledge of what needs to change, make it very clear of how they can turn it around. And then, Lord, if there are those who are struggling and maybe even have a hard heart to some of the things I've said, I pray that you would just remind them of everything we learned and all the time we spent in those first three chapters, the glorious riches of your grace. Well, that none of us would leave here without being challenged to walk in those things. So bless your people, Lord. Continue to work in us. Keep bringing us towards our goal. We want to be a mature congregation, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.